Hi again, it's Betsy Beers. I'm the executive producer of Scandal, and this is Scandal Revealed, the official Scandal podcast for the television programming Scandal on ABC 10 o'clock on Thursday nights. And it's great to have you guys back. And I've got maybe one of the best guests in the history of television sitting across from me. And I'm actually not being hyperbolic at all or big or exaggerating about this because we are such huge fans of this man's work and we're so excited when we actually got him to be on the show. And I think you guys probably feel the same way. Joe Morton, who's playing Rowan for us. Hello, how are you? And I am very well, and thank you so much for coming and doing this. And My pleasure. After that you. introduction, I feel like I should just leave. <laughs> <laughs> it only goes downhill from here, right? right? Exactly. <laughs> um, as is tradition, I'm going to describe what Joe is wearing. Joe is wearing a phenomenal baseball cap, actually, that has a rooster. eagle on a rooster. A rooster. I bought this in New York City. Uh, it was a rainy day. I needed a hat, so I bought this. And ever since, because uh, I have property in Costa Rica, and oh, whenever wow. I go to Costa Rica and I stand in front of a bar, they think I am a cockfighter. Oh, my God. I've been asked at least three or four times, is that what you do? And I thought, what? Oh, no, no, that's not what I do. So do you get something special if you say you are a cockfighter? Would they give you something? Uh, they either like arrest you or they, they ask you where the next match go is going to be. Both are awkward. Yes. And something right. that you actually don't want to be in that answer, situation. Yeah, don't don't exactly. answer either way. A very, very, very wise. I think that that's smart. Well, it's a fabulous hat. <laughs> Thank and, you. And um, very distinctive. And it's funny that you ended up buying it on New York in the street just because it was raining. And there you go. It's now become part of me. We're here to talk about um, the episode, which is called Icarus, which I think is appropriately named because poor Cyrus can't remember the Daedalus and Icarus myth, as right. I remember partway through the That's episode. Right. He and gets it confused with the winged horse as the opposed to <laughs> exactly. the gentleman who flies to the sun. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and for all of you guys, you remember that is that Greek myth where um, Daedalus and Icarus, and Icarus flies too close to the sun, and he is he's in these wax wings, and they melt. Right. So I remember this is my mythology from sixth grade, but um, the writers clearly remembered it. It's, it's an incredible episode because a lot is revealed in this episode. Yes. And for both you and for Olivia, Kerry Washington, this is an ongoing journey for you guys in terms of both father and daughter, but also how much she's finding out about Yes, and the very past. rapidly at this point. Yeah, I mean, it also, this episode begins to open up a lot of other traps, if you will, having to do with Sally, having to do with Quinn, having to do with all the other things that sort of revolve around all of us in this show. So. Exactly, and it, they're all, all the threads are sort of, I'm also fascinated by the relationship that Rowan has with Charlie. Mm. You know, since last season when we didn't know that indeed you were the father of Olivia Pope, you right. were just that super scary dude who kept in, showing up on a bench. In the dark, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it must have been nice to come out of the paternal closet. You know what? I, first of all, I have to say that um, most of the characters I usually get cast as are good guys. And so I had been talking to my agents for a, a long time saying, I'm looking for a really smart bad guy. And then, uh, I don't even know if you know this part of the story, when I came out here last year, I just came out for pilot season. Uh -huh. um, and just brought my, of course, I had my computer with me, hadn't seen uh, any of Scandal. And I thought, right. oh, great opportunity. I'll just watch Scandal on Netflix. And I watched and I thought, oh, my God, this is a show I would love to see if I could find my way onto. Two weeks later, you guys call me. Are you kidding? No. We um, podcasted last week with Linda Lowy and Jeff Perry. And one of the stories she, we talked about was we said, what was it like casting Joe Morton? Because I know from my end, you know, that we were very excited when we heard you were available. And I'd heard the, I said, I thought he was in New York. And they were like, actually, he was out here for pilot season, right. which is the only part of the story I knew. But it was this weird kind of kismet because you were here at the exact time that we started looking for this character and only like three of us knew what the fate of the character was going to be. Right. 
which was the other sort of interesting thing for you because for the people who are listening out there, the only other person who knew that Rowan was Olivia Pope's father was Joe Morton. Right. Uh, Carrie didn't know. None of the other cast members knew. I think maybe Tom knew, but I'm not sure. But Tom Verica, who's our producing director. Right. Um, and so, and when I accepted the job finally, that was the first thing that I was told is, here's where you're going to go and you can't tell anybody. <laughs> Which was great because that's who Rowan is, essentially. He's a man who sort of harbors all these secrets. Exactly. So, because it was even that much more personal that I was not going to be telling all these people about the fact that I was Olivia's father made it even more delicious for me. I mean, down to the point that uh, Scott Foley and I had all those scenes together in, sure. the, in the park, and Scott heard that I was supposed to be doing Romeo and Juliet on Broadway. And at one point towards, I guess, the end of the season, he said, so, so are you going to do Romeo and Juliet? I said, no. I said, something more interesting has come along, and <laughs> left at that. Because usually when an actor says it like that, the other actor figures, right, he doesn't want to talk about it. So right. he never asked me about it again. Okay, that was super Rowan-like behavior. You could be Rowan as Joe Morton, I protecting could. your identity as Rowan. Exactly. The show endlessly confuses me, so does my own ability to <laughs> pontificate about the show. So, But that was one of the, the most amazing moments. We've talked about this before, was the table read where everybody realized at the very end, except for Josh Molina, who always reads ahead, by right. the way, so he kind of blows every surprise. Thanks a lot, Josh. Um, <laughs> but that amazing moment where everybody realized who you were. And this is after really pretty much everybody I knew watching last season. You make this massive impression when you appear, because you appear in the shadows right. and mysteriously right. and the fact that this gigantic bomb hit every single actor stood up from the table and started screaming, screaming at the top of their lungs as though there was a fire in the house and it went on for about five minutes it's the same reaction we got when we did it at the uh, academy the, the academy, television academy we did the, the table read at the television academy which you guys might have listened to because i believe it was podcasted uh -huh. i was reading stage directions which i am lucky enough to get to do for and these tables the thank you I, I super appreciate that coming from you that's that's very sweet um, but literally i couldn't read the end of the show <laughs> because when carrie said dad there was I can't, it was three and a half minutes. Oh, of God. They stood and screamed and screaming and pointing at the and stage. Pointing and at the stage and renting their hair and ripping at their clothing right. and yeah. screaming terrible tones. And it was quite emotional and it amazing. It was great. It was great. It, it was, was terrific. Yeah, my girlfriend got it on, uh, on her iPhone. And I actually really. Every, every once in a while, we just look back at it and think, oh, my God. I would like was, to actually see that at some point. That's it's hysterical. It's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. Because she even sat down and when she sat down, because we just watched the episode, right? Sure, yeah. So, so she sat down and whoever she was sitting next to, they thought, how interesting could this be? I mean, we've just seen it. <laughs> How could this, they're just going to sit and read it? And then, of course, one, it was like doing theater, so that the audience was tintillated and, and sort of having a great time just watching us do it. And then two, of course, was the reveal at the end, which they hadn't seen, and that was just spectacular. Which was phenomenal. And there was also the moment where Cyrus has the heart attack, where everybody kind right. of lost their, right. their yes. poo. That's right. It was one of those things where the, the performance changed so much because it was a live audience and because you guys are all master thespians. Well, most of us, have, if not all of us, have done, done theater. theater. Yeah. There was this incredible, it was great, actually, to feel it on stage, this adjustment that got made where everybody started playing to the energy of the audience. And so it was a totally different experience oh, it was of, great. of the it show. Was, it like, was terrific. It right. was like getting to do, and you guys all live tweeted through the finale. Right. Were you on Twitter No, at that I did point? not. I was not on, tweet, I was not, uh, on Twitter in those You were not days. a Twitski, as no, I call no. it. Yeah. I, I am now. You are, and you have a mass of very enthusiastic followers. A lot of and also having a great time. The, the one thing that I find that's really wonderful about Twitter is that it's the immediate interaction with fans. And, and their investment in all of the characters and the storyline 
is so deep that what I do on Twitter is I sort of ride this line between Joe Morton and Rowan and then play all these jokes and a lot of, there's a lot of humor and, and people seem to be having a good time. Yeah, you are, you're a funny tweeter. I mean, I actually, your, your tweets are very humorous, but they also really, I think, pay respect to the character. Which oh, absolutely, is yes. a huge part of what's going on. Yeah. I think what's so great about this season, we've been starving, you know, in a weird way as an audience and me working on the show too, to know more about Olivia's, where she comes from, right. what her life is like, what made her into this wine-sucking, popcorn-eating <laughs> phenomenon. And one of the things I was most wine grateful sucking. to find out was that you indeed introduced her to the wine-sucking. Yes, um, which was also interesting because when I watched the show for the first time, which no one would have known, is that's one of my favorite things to do in life. Me too. Was so to, I, yes, so I was like, oh, this is perfect. Um, and then I found out that she actually doesn't, in life, Carrie doesn't drink no, wine. No, no. Because at one point I said, you know, if this were, um, if, you know, if this is real wine at the, you know, in the, in the shot, it might be this kind of wine. She said, that's nice. I don't drink it. And I thought, so I, we've now made some kind of future data that at some point I'm going to buy her a really wonderful bottle of wine and mm. we might sit and enjoy it. I'm going to get on that love train. Um, <laughs> 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 um, I think that was, I mean, certainly one of the first things, but just little by little by little as they peel back the onion and not only do we understand the complexity of the relationship you have vis-a-vis -vis the White House, mm. B613. I mean, that amazing scene a couple of episodes ago with Huck where you realize, you know, you set Huck out to do the job that you needed someone to do, and it was very handy that he showed up. Right, or that I knew he was following me, so there was a 50-50 chance I could get him to do it. Exactly, right. exactly. But the amazing amount of emotional control you have on all of these characters, and to see that Olivia both in past and present, is one of the only sort of deep, vulnerable, flummoxing things that actually Rowan has to deal with on a regular basis. Right. I mean, I think that, well, let me do it this way. The name Rowan actually sort of has two sides to it for me. Uh, one, it's a, it's a plant and a wood that's been used in witchcraft and mythology for a very long time mm -hmm. as a protective source. I believe in Harry Potter, yeah. one of the wands are made out of Rowan wood, which is a protective wand. It's never used for evil. On the other side, um, I chose a passage from Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, where Bledsoe, yeah. who was the head of the university, tells him that he should use his judgment, uh, see where he is, uh, gain contacts, power, and influence, and then stay in the dark and use them. And that's the other side of Merlin. So there's this kind of flip side, and in the middle of all of that is this man who has a daughter. So that, you know, even though he will go to any lengths necessary to sort of protect the Republic, it's that terrible situation that you find yourself in. So, you know, if you're out on a large glacier and it splits and you've got a population of people on one side and your daughter by herself on the other, who do you save? Yeah. So that's where he finds himself and has yeah. to try to figure out that dilemma. It's a fascinating thing to watch and then, I mean, it's so beautifully articulated because it's one of the things about almost all the characters on this show which certainly I think is incredibly both compelling to watch and makes everyone sympathetic no matter what they're doing is there is something about the heartbreak to me when I watch Rowan with his daughter and that he forces her to have these Sunday dinners because he needs and wants some sort of semblance of a connection even if he has to force it. There is the side of him that you realize and especially as we get more into the past mm. and the relationship with her mom Maya right. and how you juggle, how you compartmentalize those two worlds. Like when I first saw you play Rowan in flashback as this dad who was supposedly working in a museum as what, a paleontologist? Yes. Or, yeah. It was totally coherent. I mean, at the same point, that was Rowan to me. 
And that well, was and also he her. has that wonderful thing where he talks about the mastodon, which is the smaller creature with, with the very sharp just, teeth. Just genius, <laughs> which is just genius. And then so not good. That's the writers. That's definitely the writers on this show. I mean, they, you know, it's it's one thing to be put in a position where you're uh, you can perform certain kinds of characters. If you don't have the fuel, if you will, the writing to do it, it doesn't much matter what you do. In this case, you walk into a scene like that, which was so layered with all kinds of things that it's just, it, it's a pleasure because the, the writing is so good. Well, and speaking of that, we were talking about this before we started, but one of my all-time favorite moments in the show, and there's so many, but was in this past episode where, to me, Rowan gave his daughter the largest gift that Rowan on both sides could give his daughter, which right. is an answer to a question. One question. The scene between the two of you is one of the most emotional and both upsetting and fulfilling moments because it's this one weird moment where father and daughter can connect on an emotional level but also on a functionally professional level mm -hmm. as well. And they meld in this really beautiful way. And, but both of you in that moment, it is just so sad and painful and also engaging. What was that like to shoot? Well, that's the phone call. Yeah. So we weren't on the set together. Right. right. That's why. So that's partially why I'm asking. It's interesting because because what we do on this show, which is which is not w what's done on a lot of shows, is that you actually have the real person on the uh, on the on the other end of a very live phone. So you're hearing real emotion, and that made it a whole other kind of ball game, if you will. Because in the moment where I tell her when she asks the question, you know, did you are you responsible for her death? And I say no. It's it's such clarity of truth, but at the same time, because of everything that's around it, it's like all the other characters, as you were saying before, there's always, in telling the truth, you lose something. You know, you gain something, but you lose something. <laughs> yep. um, so in that moment, I gain some bit of clarity with her and, and maybe give her some relief, but at the same moment, she needs more. Because she, the next question is, what did you do? And I keep saying just one question. So I, I'm unable to fulfill what she really needs. She really needs to know the whole story, which no one at that point is willing to tell her. No, <laughs> nor the audience. And it just, it seemed to me to be this, it's what parenting is, weirdly, which is you can't answer all the questions, no. regardless. So metaphorically, it was just this big, large puddle of complexity, which just played so well. And part of the reason I asked that question is because I do think it's unusual on this show that the actor is there for you. Mm. Um, very often on things that I've worked on in the past movies, you, it will be the assistant director reading the lines, you know, and you will have to kind of pull all of those things out. But one of the things which is, has always been important for the actors on this show is that they were there for each oh, other. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know Carrie, you know, as Olivia Pope, feels incredibly strongly about that, so... It's a huge difference. It's, it's you know, because you're in, in a telephone call like that, you're either doing it by yourself, or as you say, you have some assistant director who's kind of reading the lines off camera, which can only give you cues because the assistant director's not giving you emotion. Um, and, and so it makes an enormous difference when you have the actor on the other side of the phone. Do you think when Rowan said he loved his wife, that he meant it? Absolutely. What's interesting about what will evolve with all of this in my imagination is that you have to start off with sort of a basic family. You have two people who've met and fell in love and got married and then had a daughter and, yep. and so that's where it started. Now how and when things went awry, I suppose we'll find out, but the basis of it, the bottom line is yeah, they started off like anybody else. He, he loved her, he, 
wanted to build a life with her. It wasn't anything, in my imagination, it wasn't anything that was arranged in any way. It wasn't right. political marriage. It wasn't any one of those kinds of things. To be quite honest, not even sure when Eli became Rowan. Rowan. So that's, that's a whole other question that needs to be answered. Well, and it, there's so many questions to be asked about B613 and how the heck did all that come about? Right, and, exactly. Um, which always just gives us more grist for the mill. And Probably the most important question is, how is it wearing the mustache in the flashback? <laughs> you know, wearing mustaches, you have, to, you have to sort of get used to the fact that you have this thing on your lip. And then once you get used to it and, and you've forgotten, then you know, that's the moment when you smile too big and it pops off. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so, so it is this balancing act of how do I play this thing and not look like I'm trying to keep it on my face. But no, it was fine. I mean, fortunately, we have a... A wonderful crew here in terms of makeup and hair. No, and all you're that. you're definitely in your professional who actually has worn facial hair in the past, as I'm sure you yes. have with wigs, um, as I have seen your work and I have noticed in places that you don't look exactly like yourself. So I'm assuming you're very good at that too. Right. I mean, in, in many cases, those it was either my real mustache or when I had dreads, that was my dreads. It wasn't somebody you had great else's. Great dreads, though. That that I yeah. I loved having dreads. I mean, I loved having dreads for a while. After a while, it was just too much work. But. Um, but yeah, in, in a lot of cases, if I have enough time, I'll do it myself. In this case, there was just no time to grow a mustache. No, so. as you guys all know from um, conversations about the show, we have very, very little bit of prep time to prepare our episodes. And very often, the scripts come in, ooh, just a little tad late. <laughs> so the actors, thank goodness, are great at memorizing lines. And our incredible hardworking crew is very, very good at Absolutely. pulling things from the seats of their pants, so to speak, and making stuff work, which is super fun and terrific. But you did, you wore it very well, I have to say. It, no, it was great. It was, um, uh, as a matter of fact, I think I walked onto, I walked into lunch before we shot that day and sat down and ate. And, and I heard from a number of people, they thought, did I hire a new actor? Who is that person? <laughs> I heard that from three or four people. And I thought, oh, that's good. That is absolutely awesome. Now, as you probably know, our Twitter audience has questions for you. So I'm going right. to ask you some tweetsky questions. Okay. Um, I am a recent Twitter convert, although I don't tweet as much as you do. You're really good. I've been on since December, and I've tweeted 80 times total. So <laughs> Darby Stanfield, who of course plays Abby, has been working very, very hard with me to try to get me to even retweet occasionally. So I retweeted her today in uh, a okay, huge, okay, gigantic anti-Luddite move on my own part. Well, they, they, they meaning uh, OPA, they have a system of, of which I don't even know anything about, because I do a lot of it on computer. and. And, and I haven't gotten to doing it on my phone. And they've got shortcuts and all kinds of things that I have oh, no which, idea about. By the are. way, confused me so much I became scared, hid under my bed for three days <laughs> before I would pick up my phone again. See? Now, interestingly enough, um, Lizzie at Liz Criola asked a question that we've already answered, which is in real life, do you like to drink wine? And I do, yes, yes. Yes, I do. And um, do you Cabernets? Have a Cabernets are usually my favorite. Coppola has a wonderful. We actually belong to their, we have tons of Coppola. Well, there you go. House, Coppola yeah. does a great one, and they also do a great uh, uh, claret, which is really the good. The claret is wonderful, yeah. Uh, but the wines I was actually talking to Carrie about were more expensive. They're um, uh, uh, Brunello, which is an Italian wine. Mm, yeah, it's yeah. just unbelievable. And an Amarone, which oh, is the other one. Oh, just the best, yeah. yeah. And those two, uh, you know, when I want to splurge and spend a little bit more money, are the ones that I usually go after. Yeah, we could have a long conversation about that. And there's always more 
to learn about, which is, I think, terrific. Lizzie at Liz Criola also would like to know, how easily did you get used to the scandal fast-talking? Well, you know what? Because I come from the theater, it didn't seem like that big of a stretch. I mean, there are moments where, um, you know, the actor thinks, uh, all of us have sort of come across where we think we're talking quickly, and the director <laughs> said, no, no, you have to go even faster. But the first time I had to deal with this actually was not in the show. Uh, when I did Speed, there is a scene at the beginning of the movie where we're just getting ready to go into the elevators. And I had sort of picked it up, and I was doing it really quick, and, the, and uh, Jan DeBont walked up. He said, no, 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 you have to do it even twice as fast and my head spun, but there we were. So I, I was kind of used to it. <laughs> so you, you, yeah, you dug into your inner speed course. Yes, exactly. And you, you, went, you went back to that. Adana Rocks at Adana Rocks wants to know, if you were not an actor, what other career path would you have chosen besides probably being a sommelier or a <laughs> wine collector? <laughs> I probably would have, uh, well, uh, when I was younger, I thought I wanted to go into the Air Force to become a pilot. Found out I needed to wear glasses, and so I was told I could be a navigator. I wasn't interested in being a navigator. Then when I went to university, I thought I was going to be a, a psychiatrist quickly, very, very quickly. Long story, which I'm all no, going no, to no, write. No, no, this is great. Oh, well, the first day, first day of orientation, they're taking us around. This is Hofstra University. And they're taking us around campus showing what our first year would be like. And they take us into the theater. And there's a skit about what our first year would be like. And at the end of the skit, I could not get up out of my seat. I'd never done theater before. Um, had been playing a lot of music, uh, mm -hmm. playing guitar and writing songs. And I thought, you like to sing, you like to play music, maybe you could be an actor. I got up out of the seat, walked to the registrar's office, and changed all my majors from, psychology, from psychology to drama. At which point, my grandmother had a fit, because <laughs> she was going to help us with her tuition. She said, forget that, and she was serious. And that was that. So the answer to the question is probably I would have been, gone into the music business. And skip the psychology altogether. And skip the psychology. No, there's some psychology in acting too that I think. There really is. It's like this weird kind of. Yeah. Most of us kind of drove around. Well, because that's what we have to do. That's what we do all day long is shrink yeah. your own character's head. Right. Exactly. You have to get into the head of whoever it is you're playing. And uh, did, I'm assuming your grandmother forgave you at a particular point when you. She did. And, 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 and the moment that she forgave me was interesting because that <laughs> first year I was in hair. And, <laughs> oh my God. Okay. Um, took me a long time to get in. I think I must have auditioned oh, ten or twelve times, and finally they hired me. And so of course. I invited my mother to come see the show. Now, she knew there was a nude scene, but I hadn't heard from her. I kept calling to the box office, have the tickets been picked up? No, no, no. And finally, yes, the tickets have been picked up. So what I didn't tell her was that knowing that she would be embarrassed by my doing the nude scene, I was actually going to play the cop. The cop who comes into the house, yeah. for those of you who have not seen it, the cop comes into the house and sort of says everybody's under arrest because of the nude scene. And I changed the blocking so I'd be right next to where my mother was going to be sitting. But when I get up there, my mother's not there. It's my grandmother and her boyfriend. <laughs> oh my, <God. laughs> my mother didn't come. So my grandmother came, and I give the speech, and I left. And as I go back downstairs and I'm crossing through the house, across the stage, she jumps up out of her seat, and she says, that's my grandson. So the entire house hears it. So I guess she forgave me. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm sure the audience got a huge kick out of that, because sure that was a more participatory show. Uh, absolutely, yes. They probably thought it was part of the show. What about your character do you like and dislike the most? Is This is Hessa Al-Manai at HDM. Well, we kind of talked about it before. The two sides of the character is what I, I love about him, that he's on one hand someone who is highly pro uh, a protectorate, if you will, and on the other hand someone who sort of works out of the shadows in terms of his power. There's nothing that I dislike about this character. From an acting point of view, that would be a very, very bad thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for, for you guys, hating your character, if you're acting, the character would be kind of awkward. Yes, it would be. Because I think the bias would be very heavily against your yes. character in that way. <laughs> it was 
when I um, years ago started out as an actor, and one of the reasons I stopped acting was because I identified as much with all the other people that I was playing parts with as my own character, <laughs> which was a large indication for me that I wasn't meant to be probably an actor. I probably should do something, something else. else that had to do with it because I tended to think a lot of the characters had a way better point than I did, <laughs> which is just not a great way to act. So um, keep that guy's not in mind. Not a good idea. Right. If any of you, you know, thoughts about that. Uh, Nicole at Nicole TP wants to know, what has been your favorite scene to film so far? Gosh, there's been so many of them. One is the one we just talked about, which is on the phone. <clears throat> Certainly the very first uh, scene we did uh, at the beginning of the season. Oh in, my in God, the come hangar. on, just shut up. <laughs> like that is the best, that airplane was, scene. Oh my God. It was amazing. Uh, the scene we did in the next episode, uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner stuff, where I tell her after sort of saying, you know, you don't know me this way. You don't want to know me this way, so just sit down, order you do, all that kind of stuff. It was, again, one of those really layered kind of scenes in the second episode. Those two probably are my favorite so far. Well, with good reason, and I think that opening scene for the season was so mind-blowing. That was one of those things you just watch, and the whole world shakes upside down because Olivia, who's this incredibly strong character we've seen in all these different situations, and once, late in, I guess it was around episode 11 or 12 last season, she curls up in bed and she doesn't get out of bed, and that was pretty much the only time you saw her guard down, but she still looked great doing it, so nobody really <laughs> cared. We've all experienced it, I think, as people, is your parent looks at you and you immediately become... The child. A child, and I know when I see my sisters to this day, I have two sisters, and... I immediately become 10. No matter what happens, if we all get together, within a very rapid period of time, my two sisters have reduced me to a 10-year-old in one sense or another, sometimes in the best way possible. Right. But you still regress. So there was something so identifiable about that and so terrifying, but also the dude is just trying to take care of his kid. You right. Know? I mean, and he's not, he's not the most delicate in, in doing so. But um, so I'm sure the lesson was, was uh, hard learned from her, for her, but um, there you go. Um, Adana Rocks at Adana Rocks wants to know, do you have any similarities with your character? Well, we share the same body. That's a good one, I think, actually. That's a that's primary, but not the same mustache. Certainly not the same mustache. And and probably we share the same caring for our children. I mean, also, my father was in the service, and so I think a part of me is reflective of who my father was. He was a real disciplinarian. He was a captain in the army. His job was to integrate the armed forces overseas. He, really? Well, he was one of the, you know, soldier story. That was yeah. him. That was him. Really? He was one of those guys, yeah. So a lot of who he is is in this character. The other side of it, um, there's lots of things that Ron and I do not have in common <laughs> at all. You know, having to do with uh, doing away with people and all the rest of it. Also, uh, you know, it's what's great about acting and, and great about sort of doing these kinds of characters is to imagine, I'm sure Tony goes through the same thing, to imagine what it must be like to possess that kind of power. To be this guy who is supposedly the most powerful male personality in America and some branch of some CIA whatever, B613, is a fairly large thing to carry around. And, and that's probably, in, a, in one way, is probably the most interesting part of the character, in a way. You know, what also really interests me is the difference between Tony's character, Fitz, which is publicly powerful, and the idea of secret and private power, that whole concept of you're the arguably as powerful, more powerful than the president, given what we're setting up right. in the show, but nobody can know. It's weird. What is your relationship with that power, which is inside of you, knowing that it exists, but you're not you're not dealing with the public acknowledgement, just the acknowledgement of your peers. Right, which is, the, as I say, that's the end of Bledsoe's quote, which is to stay in the dark and, and use that kind of power. so great. Yeah. And also the fact that it's 
The Invisible Man. Oh, so. which makes me now want to go back and reread the book, which I have not read in a uh, while, which is brilliant. such such a good book. Absolutely. This has been unbelievable. I just want to have you back just to talk at the very least about your dad and that. I mean, I had no it was idea. Pretty, it was pretty wild. I mean, we would, you know, move every two or three years and he would, he would arrive at whatever post he was assigned to racially unannounced. So he was a captain in the army. He would show up and this black man with two bars on his shoulders would show up and all hell would break loose because they thought he was an impersonator. It couldn't happen. This was uh, mid to late 50s. So it was when the army was really going through its real integration sure. kind of exercises. It was on one hand fascinating because we traveled to Okinawa, we traveled to Japan, we traveled to Germany, all those kind of places. But on the other side of things, I was in fights pretty much a lot because there were a lot of were. white kids who sort of didn't like and, but the other side of that coin was I hadn't lived in America for most of my life. Uh, I lived most of my life, up until I was 10, outside of America. Uh -huh. So when I came back, there was a whole other kind of resistance which I met, which is black people, kids who were my age. I was, again, which is why I think I got cast in Brother from Another Planet. Mm -hmm. I was the stranger. Yeah. I spoke differently, had no accent. I never played basketball. I swam. You know, I, there were all these kinds of things that black kids just did not recognize as right. being black. And I think a lot of that is what happened when we came back from Europe, is that, because I literally went from Dachau to Harlem, 155th Street, Edgecombe Avenue, and went to school at a public school for about a year. And it was, it was... The culture shock, I mean, that's... For all, for everybody. For, ev for them, for you, yeah, for everybody. everybody. Yeah, for everybody. My sister used to tell a story, my oldest sister, about she was going to a junior college in the 70s during the year where everything changed, and she went one year to her junior college where there were curfews and you wore pearls to dinner and you, it was sit down and the next year she came back and there were no rules. And it was that same thing I know with women I knew who all of a sudden when the rules change like that, it's so confusing for a person. So to go from where you went from to the assumptions that you walk into in Harlem must have been It was pretty, I mean it was wild. It was wild. I mean because part of me was thinking, home at last. This is going to be easy. <laughs> It was not easy at all. It wasn't easy at all. And that's when my mother uh, decided that I should go to a Catholic military school. She pulled me out of, out of Harlem and she sent me up to Newburgh, New York. Uh -huh. I, I went to a semi-military academy and I thought, God, now, this I know. This these are I, rules. I understand what yeah, these rules are. I know are. what this is. Unbelievably interesting. See, have you ever lived in California? Um, off and on. Many years ago, I did a series called Equal Justice. Oh, yeah. And we were here for that. Um, but I've come in and out of California depending on what the work was. So. Well, we're glad to have you here and trying to keep you here. And well, right now I'm still going back and forth. So. Oh, damn. See, that's... <laughs> thank you for uh, being out here and thank you for coming out for pilot season because, boy, did we get lucky. I got lucky. I mean, you know, we all did, I suppose. I mean, it, as I say, it was exactly the kind of character that I was looking to play. And then to be part of this incredible cast was even more of a boon. I oh, thought, oh, you couldn't, yeah. you couldn't ask for more. I mean, it's what Carrie says all the time. I love my job. So. Oh, yeah. No, i got to say I love my job, too, because I don't have to do what you guys do. I get to watch it and participate, and it's, it's the best. And I have a captive audience of these poor people who have to listen to me babble every week. So... <laughs> It's genius. It's but like it's also it's what you what you what you and Shonda do is provide the stage, and that's as important, if not more important, than what we do. Without what you do, we wouldn't be here. So well, the feeling is definitely mutual. Thank you so much for doing this for us, Joe, oh, and coming pleasure. on in and getting a chance to talk. And I'm going to sign.
sidebar with Joe later about our wine tastes, um, which I'm very <laughs> excited about, which is great. I will be back, obviously, next week. Not obviously, but because I can. <laughs> we got a great new episode next week on Scandal. It's called Everything's Coming Up Melly. And you're going to learn a lot about the character of Melly, and a lot of what you learn may allow you to see Melly in a slightly different light. It's an incredible episode of television. Please don't miss it. I know you guys are pretty regular viewers if you're listening to this podcast, so check it out. Thursday night, ABC, 10 o'clock. If you're in the neighborhood and the television is sort of nearby, I really think you should watch Grey's Anatomy, too. <laughs> Fine television program. Excellent surgeons. You might get some tips depending on if there's anything wrong with you. You might be able to track down some symptoms. Nine o'clock ABC, Thursday night. And thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week. I'm Betsy Beers. I'm the executive producer of Scandal. This is Scandal Revealed. Have a phenomenal week. Bye-bye. <laughs>